What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. This week... The BOJ has brought perhaps not one bazooka, but a couple. Garfield Reynolds on the Bank of Japan's surprise to the markets. Later. Had January 6th not happened, January 8th would probably not have happened either. Eduardo Porter on the similarities and differences between January 8th in Brazil and January 6th in the United States. We'll also hear from Justin Fox on the ongoing propensity to drink alcohol post-pandemic. First, though, to John Authors and the resurgence of emerging markets to start 2023. So, John, a few things happened in Q4 of 2022. China obviously abruptly started to reopen. U.S. markets were extraordinarily volatile. The Fed was ramping up hawkish language. Mm. It was all to be a little bit expected. But it has given rise to a spectacular performance by emerging markets. Yes. Does it continue? It certainly can. And I think on balance, it probably does. There's no such thing as a free lunch or a certainty in in these things. But I think the case for staying overweight in emerging markets is pretty strong these days. Emerging markets have been cheap relative to developed for a very long time now, for over a decade. They've just persistently underperformed further and they've looked ever cheaper. So there have always been those reasons which give room for a lot of outperformance once they finally begin to recover. The two critical catalysts are you mentioned China, obviously, and a weak dollar, which would happen with a US slowdown or a relatively early easing in rates. If the dollar does weaken on cue and China does seriously stimulate, it's pretty hard to see how emerging markets don't beat developed for the next year or two. Right. And there's a lot of questions in there because we don't know how much China can stimulate or how much China is willing to stimulate or blow out its deficit, for Mm. example. But you have to wonder why it's all happening now, given that many of the same conditions that we were dealing with last year are still in place, including chip wars, the actual war on Ukraine, shortages of certain materials, even China's poor performance. Yes. But if you try to uh, discount future performance, which is what you're trying to do, you don't buy a stock or a bond's past, you buy its future when you buy it. The arguments that emerging markets can move ahead do look stronger than they did. I mean, one of the other critical points here is that synchronization is less than it was. We had a moment of extreme synchronization, obviously, with the pandemic. But what we have had since then, countries like Brazil had to start hiking rates pretty aggressively in 2021. And as we know, the Fed didn't for another year after that. The ECB waited longer. That means that you've got differentials in emerging markets favours. If you're looking for carry trades, if you're looking to make money from yields or whatever, there's that much greater of an appeal. It also means that some of them are already at the other end of the cycle and beginning to pick up growth again. Obviously, China with the extreme change in its COVID policy is a very big part of that, but it's not just China. Yes, the conditions are generally not so different from 12 months ago, 
but we have moved on 12 months. The US has hiked a lot and the emerging markets have already earned some of the advantages of having hiked earlier. Now, Goldman Sachs, as you point out, Mm. is suggesting a three percentage point differential in growth between EM and DM. How does Goldman explain that? Again, it's primarily about China. China is just very, very important. Very big, yeah. And the likelihood is that they will be able to drive growth, not just in China, but everywhere else. If, If China starts demanding more, and this is one of the more interesting questions, whether that will help commodity producers as much as it's used to or whether it will help people who might be wanting to export consumer goods to China. But it does help everybody if China is beginning to grow again. Most importantly, though, you are at a different point in the cycle. The central banks in the developed world are waiting for growth to slow down and wanting that to happen. And in emerging markets, they are at the point of emerging from those precise conditions. We don't have the synchronization we did. Another point is that back in the big emerging market boom that came before the global financial crisis, one of the great buzzwords was decoupling, that the emerging markets now got to the point where their middle classes were growing, they were trying to mature their economies, become consumer-led, all the rest of it. And as they did that, they would decouple from the developed world. That turned out to be wrong, as we discovered in 2008. However, it's conceivable now, in for less healthy reasons, there might be more truth to it. Deglobalization has happened to a fairly significant extent, and there is somewhat more need for emerging markets to create their own growth. I don't want to take this too far. Obviously, the dollar is still extremely important, important yeah. to emerging markets, but the world has moved on in a way that does make some form of decoupling much more plausible than it was 15 years ago. But it's going to be difficult for emerging markets to carry that off, right? I mean, you can't materialise materials, literally, mm. or demand or GDP growth. Risks of politics and governance would be high on the list. People are concerned about whether Lula is going to be a much more left-wing Prime Minister, uh, President this time around, compared to his first stint in office, Lopez Obrador in um, Mexico, who's coming towards the end of his term, is, has has been moving in a generally rather disquieting authoritarian and anti-market direction, those being two of the most obvious countries to do well otherwise. So yes, there are, there are plainly political risks, but there always are. Um, you know, Lula has been president for 10 years in the past. Lopez Obrador was mayor of Mexico City, which is effectively the second biggest job in Mexican politics. Before. Yes. The, these aren't complete political novices shouting to burn everything down in charge. They're, they're people whose politics are to the left of where many investors feel comfortable. But I don't myself see those dangers as particularly serious. We've seen that huge rally in, in EM equities, obviously, but there are fascinating opportunities in EM debt. And yes. obviously, Mohamed El Arian and Rob Konigsberger of yeah. Gramercy Funds have been pointing this out as well. They're very excited about it, not just in the very immediate term, but over the next almost 24 months, perhaps. Yes. I think the point that they made, which I was fascinated to see because I hadn't noticed it before, in terms of drawdowns, emerging market debt last year, on a total return basis, had its worst drawdown since 
the Russian default in 1998. Which is crazy, right? Yes, because there wasn't actually an emerging market crisis last year. But Russia is not a large part of these. There was no vintage emerging market in trouble. There was no worry about sudden massive devaluation anywhere in the emerging world or default. The only bigger drawdowns since the MB benchmark has been in place since the beginning of 94 were around the tequila crisis in Mexico in 94, which was an epic crisis at a point when the emerging world was in a very different place. Mm. And then only a few years later when Russia defaulted under Yeltsin. I mean, obviously, I'm not the first to point out that last year was a very unusually synchronised year and absolutely everything fell. Mm. It's a bit hard to see that there's a good reason for emerging markets to have done as badly as they did. If you believe in a continuing weak dollar, then you benefit just from the weakening of the dollar if you're holding on to emerging market assets. The yields, both because of the sell-off and because with higher rates anyway, they're offering more. The yields are very much more appealing than they've been for a very long time. A lot of these arguments do seem to be contingent on a continuing weakening dollar. Yes. Though I guess it looks like we may have a continuing weakening dollar anyway. Mm. Um, what about some of the other currencies, though? I mean, are they stable enough that they can hold their own? The other huge wild card in the financial world at the moment is the yen. Mm which obviously matters quite a lot to uh, some of the, the key emerging markets on the in Asia-Pacific. I think it's close to certain that the Bank of Japan will have to be considerably tighter in its monetary policy by the end of this year than it is now because the kind of intervention it's having to do at present is truly unsustainable. There will be new leadership in the first week of April yes, and something will happen there. And that could throw a real spanner in the works, right? We're going to be speaking with Garfield Reynolds in a few minutes about yeah. the Bank of Japan and how it did nothing this time around on yield curve control, which was yes. a surprise to markets and the yen reacted. But the yen has been really a sort of a wild card, as you say. What was interesting to me about that reaction, of Garfield knows more about this than I do, but the, uh, the speed with which the yen weakened again in the immediate aftermath of the decision showed that a lot of people really did think that Kuroda, who's been in charge for more than a decade yeah. and this hugely important figure was going to basically give up on his signature policy right before leaving which was always unlikely but it was obvious from the market reaction that people really had thought this was going to happen but the yen came all the way back within 10 hours I think it was I think because you still reverted to the fact that this is only a matter of time you still don't really want to be too far short the yen for much longer this year because it's very likely to appreciate. And yes, depending on how it's handled and obviously making sure that there isn't some big disruption caused by a major surprise to the market, the yen would be one of the other wild cards that could mess up the picture we're looking at. at We're not even going to talk about oil. Um, Not this time. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. Stay tuned. Chief Asia Rates Correspondent Garfield Reynolds next on the Bank of Japan's Surprise to the Markets. This is Bloomberg Opinion. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week, the Bank of Japan surprised markets. Not economists necessarily, just markets, which were expecting another tweak to the Bank of Japan's yield curve control mechanism. Well, markets didn't get that. I spoke with Chief Asia Rates Correspondent Garfield Reynolds. There is no economic reason to expect the 10-year JGB yields to continue trading above the 0.5% band. I don't think the Bank of Japan needs to widen the 10-year JGB trading range as the bank is continuing to manage market adjustments through the nimble use of YCC and fund supplying operations. So the BOJ kept the band as is at about 0%. The market was looking for another tweak. Did the December tweak then fail, Garfield? Well, the December tweak certainly failed to improve market function, which was supposed to be the aim of it. Instead, it set off an enormous credibility problem for the BOJ and spread turmoil around global bond markets. They now seem to be trying to put the genie back into the bottle, as it were, by insisting they're going to stick with their current policy. They're going to be flexible about the way they pursue bond buying. There's several warning shots being fired across the bond bears' bowels right now. The message from the yen, which is down more than 2%, is very much that this is a dovish surprise. Did the currency move play into this decision? Well, it's interesting. The BOJ has actually said in its announcement that it is taking currency into account. So that adds an extra layer of uncertainty. If the yen continues to drop, then will that make it harder for the BOJ to move ahead with trying to control the bond market? Or is it willing to go on spending truly astonishing amounts of yen every day to contain JGB yields? Yen swaps were trading near 1% versus the YCC bond target of about a half a percent. So hedging activity was rife in swaps. Does that now calm down or does the market still try to tell the central bank what to do? Well, that's going to be one of the key battlegrounds, especially because the BOJ is, has announced that it will adjust the rate at which it lends money to banks in order for banks to buy JGBs. And certainly we've seen the 10-year swap rate that you were talking about, which at one stage was at almost 1%. It came into the meeting at about 0.92%. It's now down 10 basis points from that. So for the moment, that's a sign that the market is pondering how strongly it can act to take on the BOJ because the BOJ has signaled a very strong willingness to fight the market and that it is looking to potentially expand its arsenal in doing so. When Governor Kuroda took office, the BOJ owned 11% of the JGB market. What is it now, Garfield, and how high can it go? <laughs> well, that's the, that's the, the one quadrillion yen question, so to speak, uh, saying that's how large the Japanese bond market is. It stood at about 52% of the market at the end of last year. That's based on face value of BOJ holdings versus 
with bonds outstanding, not taking T-bills into account. So far this month, they've probably expanded that to about 53%, considering what's going on. So they can't keep going at this pace because soon they literally will run out of bonds to buy. That's part of why they're perhaps trying to be you know, expanded arsenal, as I said. It also does raise the potential that they will expand as rapidly for a while until they do convince the market that they're willing to do whatever it takes to contain bond yields. It's almost a little bit like the U.S. market at the moment with the central bank here in the U.S. continually trying to convince the market that it's going to stick to its guns. Is that something similar that's playing out in Japan? Yeah, there's definitely something something similar. I mean, there are different dynamics at play. And to some extent, if you think back early last year, we had Fed President Powell saying that he was fairly certain that inflation would be transitory and so it wouldn't have to raise rates too fast, too fast. But then the market was saying, no, 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 you're going to have to hike a lot. And ultimately, the Fed came around to that thinking. It's just now the market thinks it's done enough. We're right at the beginning of that process with the BOJ, where the BOJ is still effectively saying it thinks inflation is transitory. One of the surprises for traders and investors was that the BOJ maintained CPI forecasts for 2024 under 2%. Mm. And that 2% level is what the BOJ has targeted as the aim of their policies. So if they're thinking that CPI is going to come back down to there, then that backs the idea that they will not be tightening policy from here. Well, interestingly, all of the economists in the Bloomberg survey had forecast that the Bank of Japan would stand pat. So clearly, economists are looking at the inflation data where markets are really looking at maybe momentum or some kind of credibility issue, as you said. But we are getting some wage inflation in Japan at the moment. Is the Bank of Japan correct? One part of what's going on is some were thinking that the last thing the BOG wants to do as soon as it gets a little bit of wage growth is act in a way that could uh, deter that wage growth from really taking off. Because after all, if it did do much more along the lines of what some of the market bets were, then that would raise borrowing costs in the economy. That would make it harder to get sustained wage increases. So you sort of nip it in the bud a little bit too soon. The other thing, of course, that's been going on is that, well, markets are following the money. If you bet going into the last BOJ meeting that they were going to do something which would allow yields to rise, you did very well indeed, despite the fact that there was a very strong consensus. It was unlikely the BOJ would do anything like what they actually did. So when you see people make money betting against the Bank of Japan, it makes sense for people to follow in and to you know, to keep betting. There are plenty of people who were betting against the last time have been telling us they're still betting against the Bank of Japan. They think the current setup is unsustainable. And so you know, many of them are realistic enough to acknowledge that they might not get what they want this time, but they still see bonds as being vulnerable to further declines going forward because that global inflation backdrop isn't going away Haruhiko Kuroda is going away after April 1st. So change is in the air. There's your confirmation that this is being taken as very dovish. The BOJ has brought perhaps not one bazooka, but a couple. So while this round may go to the BOJ, it's also going to be fascinating looking forward to what exactly the BOJ means when it says it will be nimble in its bond purchases going forward. Does this narrow the field as to his successor now? 
not necessarily. You could actually argue that if he manages to stave off the damage that had been done to the BOJ's credibility, the last meeting provides a lot of flexibility that, in fact, opens the field back up. It gives the government more opportunities to uh, you know, sit back and decide, OK, what kind of a policy do they want, rather than being in a situation where they feel they might need to plump for one candidate or the other as being the one who could best resolve this thorny situation. Finally, Garfield, equities seem to take this news in their stride. Most of the indices in Japan were higher. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a couple of things there. One is, you know, there are some companies that actually benefit from a weaker yen, mm. as well as not too weak of a yen. So that's welcome. And I think just the idea that the BOJ is going to seek to restore credibility and isn't going to drive up interest rates earlier than most had expected, that's being welcomed by equity traders. Bloomberg's Chief Asia Rates Correspondent Garfield Reynolds there. Stay tuned, we move continent to Brazil next and speak with Bloomberg Opinions' Eduardo Porter. Because the January 6th insurrection in the United States was so clearly identified with a political party... I can see that creating, you know, frictions and and and, and forces and, and and disruptive forces within that party. In the case in Brazil, the forces that have drawn the in, the rebels together are not quite as coherent. This is Bloomberg opinion. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. <laughs> Now to Brazil, where election denial continues to fester following the January 8th storming of empty Brazilian institutions. I spoke to Bloomberg Opinion's Eduardo Porter. Eduardo, lots of comparisons between January 8th in Brasilia and January 6th, obviously, in the United States. But moving beyond that, January 6th did seem to be the event that splintered the Republican Party. It was already pretty fractious. Now I think it's even more so. Is that what happens with these populist uprisings? Do we see Brazil's election deniers start to splinter or is it more likely that they could be galvanized by these events? That's a very good question and I don't have an easy answer. Because the the January 6th insurrection in the United States was so clearly identified with a political party, the Republican Party. I can see that creating, you know, frictions and forces and, and, and disruptive forces within that party. In the case in Brazil, the forces that have drawn the rebels together are not quite as coherent, not quite as cohesive. It's not like a political party where all this belongs. I would say that there are groups, so for instance, the agribusiness sector of the Brazilian economy, the ranchers that are in, you know, in Mato Grosso and in the Amazon. A lot of the hostility towards the Lula regime come from those sectors, but I don't see them as coherently grouped up. So I don't see a party that would fragment. Brazil's politics are already extremely fragmented. There's a huge number of parties represented in the Congress. And so it's not clear that this would actually have an effect in the legislature. On the other hand, you have people like Steve Bannon, Mm -hmm. who probably would like to take some credit for this. How much influence did somebody like that have down there? 
I would say that had January 6th not happened, January 8th would probably not have happened either. I do think that this was a clear force of example. The biggest democracy in the, in the hemisphere can do this. Why can't we? It looks like a good idea. Might be fun. I mean, if you put videos side to side, they'd look pretty much identical, except for in Brazil, everybody was wearing a yellow t-shirt. But to the more specific point that people close to Trump, particularly Mr. Bannon, had their hand in this, they certainly did. Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo, was here even before the Brazilian election, talking about how all the electoral technology in Brazil was susceptible to being manipulated and how the election could be stolen. They were preparing the ground to make an argument very similar to the one that was made in the United States. And then they made it. Once Bolsonaro lost the election, we heard all about how this was fraudulent. In fact, Bolsonaro's group tried to make their case before the electoral tribunal and it was shot down. And so the parallels with what happened here go beyond the day. You know, there was these efforts through Brazilian institutions to, 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 to make them call the election fraudulent. And when they lost, they just unleashed the people onto the Congress. So then Lula should also learn from the response to January 6th. What should he do? Is a crackdown on his part advisable? Should he oh, leave it to the criminal justice system? I, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's critically important that he establish that this is not okay. And I think that it might be easier for him than it was for the Democrats because, you know, the Democrats meant acting against Republicans and many of which were sitting legislatures. In Brazil, you'll have less of that. So, I mean, I think you'll have less of that because we don't even, we don't really know where the chain of culpability leads. Mm. But I do think that the Lula government must go very, very forcefully against the people who instigated it, it's the people who financed this. It's still not clear who these people are. So a former central banker in Brazil, Tony Volpon, told Exante Data that this emboldens President Lula to push ahead with expansionary fiscal plans. Now, that could help economic growth. Expenditure, though, might also set off investor concerns. What say you? Is that a little bit of an outlier argument? Yeah, I'm not convinced that this gives Lula that much you know, additional power to enact an aggressive policy strategy. The country is still very, very divided. Mm. And I don't think that this is going to change that. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the, the right looks a little bit crazier. But remember that Bolsonaro had already celebrated strategies that involving the death of his political rivals and the torture of his political rivals. I mean, Brazilians already knew the craziness on that side of the political spectrum. So I don't really think that this opens great new space for Lula to govern. In terms of Bolsonaro, is he planning some kind of comeback? I mean, he's in Florida, apparently was hospitalized for a time for abdominal issues. There is a little bit of diplomatic pressure on the US government. We'll talk about that in a second. But is he planning some kind of comeback, a triumphant comeback to <sighs> politics in Brazil? I mean, I do think that that is off the cards now. I wouldn't be surprised if the administration goes after him criminally if they could prove some more direct responsibility. I do think that this does, at the very least, end his political career. Mm. And those of his... Proxies. <laughs> I, that, I, I, I'm not sure that it ends a political career of everybody that are associated, associated with this kind mm. of, of this movement. But of him personally, yes. I mean, now he says he's going to go back to Brazil. And I, I think that... He is legally vulnerable. There are fans of Bolsonaro on Wall Street. There are obviously investors who 
are less concerned about the human and the social aspects of these types of things and more about what happens to assets and asset prices and so on. Do they get placated enough that they find Brazil investable again? I think they're going to eventually find Brazil investable. I mean, I think it's less that they love Bolsonaro and more that they fear Lula. They fear the notion of a leftist government that's going to go in, you know, do a lot of redistribution and engage in deficit spending on a large scale. But I think that ultimately Lula has already been the president. He's already proven that he can be a pragmatic, pretty reasonable steward of the Brazilian economy. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does that again, that ultimately Wall Street investors, like they did when he governed last time around, will ultimately come to terms with the Lula government and not flee Brazil at all. I mean, in fact, if you look at the performance of the Brazilian stock market, it did way better under Lula than it did under Bolsonaro. Mm. This is true. And also, we should point out that the latest Atlas poll has President Lula's approval rating at 51.1%, his disapprovals at 41.6%. That's not a terrible performance. But, I mean, for Lula, it's not great, you know? I mean, it does show a country that's pretty split. Lula, when he was president, he was extremely popular. He left the presidency with popularity rating substantially higher than 51%. So, for him, it's a low, and I do think that that underscores how divided Brazil is. I mean, in the American context, that looks great, but this I, is true. <laughs> you know, but I, it looks to me that 41% of Brazilians still reject him and probably are still enamored of Bolsonaro strikes me as maybe the main obstacle that he will have to govern this notion that there is such a large share of the population that really rejects him. So I want to be diplomatic about this. The U.S. has a mixed record at being involved in Latin America Mm -hmm. at best. I think that's the best best. word we can use for it. What's the U.S. supposed to do here? I mean, it's already involved. It can't ignore the situation. Bolsonaro is here. There's pressure on President Biden to revoke his visa in some way. Yeah, well, I think the U.S. can do things. I think so far so good. President Biden invited Lula over and called him up and told him that, you know, insurrection was unacceptable and that he stood behind Brazilian democracy and so forth. I think that was good. I think there's other things that could happen kind of like in a less public way. So, for instance, there are very close military to military ties between the Brazilian military and the U.S. military. I mean, a lot of the Brazilian top brass comes to the U.S. to train. And so so that could be a channel where because that's the most worrisome institution right now in Brazil, the military. Do we know how much support Lula has in the military? Because we do know that Jair Bolsonaro had a huge amount of support, at least among the police, if not the wider security apparatus. The optimistic take is that the military are so far behaving pretty responsibly. Mm. You know, they did allow many of these protesters to encamp in military bases in the capital and in other around other cities. I mean, the protesters were really expecting the armed forces to join in and, and try to overturn the, the election. But they didn't. Mm. And they haven't. And so I don't think they're super in love with Lula as an institution, but they have proven to be institutionalists, defenders of democracy so far, so good. And I think that the U.S. could kind of like help that cause by, you know, just making sure that Brazilians know that the United States would not be happy if the Brazilian military were to like take a more active role in, say, undermining the Lula administration. Bloomberg Opinion's Eduardo Porter. Well, if you're not among the Dry January crew out there, you got to listen to this next interview. Justin Fox had a look at the data and found people are spending more on alcohol, even post-pandemic. 
So, Justin, you wrote a very consoling recent column. Not consoling in the sense that it told us that the pandemic drinking binge just kept on going after the pandemic was ostensibly over, but very consoling for those of us who've had a couple of drinks in the last week or two. (laughs) Tell us, what are the data saying? Well, I wrote, I guess, a year and a half or so ago about how much alcohol sales and seemingly consumption increased over the course of the pandemic. And I just sort of checked in again with the highest frequency data we can look at, which is just the consumer spending that the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts out. They actually give you in some detail how much is spent on beer, wine, and liquor at stores, Mm. and then how much is spent in general on drinks at bars and restaurants. And it's just kept going up, even in inflation-adjusted terms. And a little bit of that is maybe people are buying fancier stuff, but I think it's mostly... Overall, Americans are drinking more. How much do we know about the internals of those data in the sense that I feel like many of the large companies put out things like X0 or X00? I don't want to give any brand names here, but are some of these zero alcohol drinks considered alcohol in this? No, they don't. They don't show. They shouldn't show up in any of this data. It is possible to spend a lot of money on um, non-alcoholic liquor. And I now do that, weirdly enough. Yeah. But that should just show up as a non-alcoholic beverage. Right. Well, there's been an explosion of those kinds of products within the brands. Right. And there's been definitely this increase in demand for, I forget the term that the Distilled Spirits Council uses, hyper, super duper premium spirits. And, And there's a lot more growth in the high end sales than in the low end sales. So in terms of the actual volume of, at least with liquor being consumed and probably with beer and wine too, it's not completely reflected by those increases in sales. Some of that is just people paying more money, not drinking more volume. But yeah. there, there are lots of signs that there's more problematic drinking going on, the main one being a big increase in alcohol-related deaths. What's going on with alcohol-related deaths? Alcohol consumption in the U.S. peaked in the 1970s and had been on this long decline partly because of less beer consumption, but also less liquor consumption. Wine consumption kept going up, but not radically. Sometime in the last couple of decades, spirits consumption started rising again. And it's pretty, you know, the whole cocktail boom, there's been this explosion in the number of small distilleries all over the U.S. And it's kind of cool in general, but it means that per capita alcohol consumption has been rising now for more than a decade. And then it seems to have just taken a leap a couple of months into the pandemic. Yeah. I guess I had thought that would have fallen back, but it hasn't really. Another interesting thing is this increased drinking is not young people. Oh. For like the 18 to 24 set, I think they're probably drinking less. But it's middle-aged and older are the ones drinking more. Well, and also legalization of weed and having weed dispensaries. New York City just had its first one open. Yeah, sort of pushed it aside for a certain generation. I think also in the survey data, it's mostly... Women who are drinking more, with mm. men maybe more flat. Interesting. Alcohol-related deaths, do we know how they're happening? I mean, this is very grim and gruesome, but, you know, you're good at looking at gruesome data. Right. I, I mean, I, the CDC has this database, and you can just click alcohol-induced deaths. But it's some mix of cirrhosis of the liver. And, I mean, what the CDC says is that that's actually only a portion of deaths that are somehow related to alcohol. Those are ones where it's basically, you can very directly lay it down to alcohol use. There are lots of others in terms of accidents, violence, that are probably alcohol-related but don't show up. So, Justin, is there any hope for those of us who drink and haven't been uh, cutting back? 
I mean, I'm not a great self-help journalist. My own personal situation is it's January and I'm drinking a lot less, but yeah, I just agreed to go meet a friend for drinks. Maybe I'll see if they have good mocktails there at the place where we're going. <laughs> Even the name is just a little too bougie. Bloomberg Opinions, Justin Fox. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. Do send us your thoughts, though. Email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. And as always, we're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.